amongst you this morning and to be looking at beautiful faces, uh, faces of people that I haven't seen uh, in a long time and who come with a measure of joy, radiating joy and a degree of expectation this morning to hear about God and uh, His Word. This morning, we're going to be overlapping two chapters of the book of Mark. We're going to be looking at the, latter, the second half of uh, Mark, and I call that portion, Comply or Defy. I repeat, Comply or Defy. And the second portion in Mark chapter 12, I call Accept or Reject. Accept or Reject. So we have these very clear and stark choices that we're confronted with this morning that we have to respond in one way or the other. There's no measure of sitting on the fence, whether it's verbal or not, whether it's open or not, we are called to respond. So turn with me, if you will, to Mark chapter 11, beginning at verse 27. And Kelly printed this out for me big enough that I may not be using my glasses this morning. And that's the wonderful part about having a helper who knows all of your weaknesses and your needs so that she helps you and adapts and makes things uh, easier for me. So beginning in Mark chapter 11, verse 27. Let me read it for you. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, one, the teachers of the law, two, and the elders came to him, three. And they asked him the following two questions. By one, what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And two, and who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question in response to the two. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me, exclamation mark. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they feared the people, for everyone held that John was really a prophet. Excuse me, that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus with the, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, one, dug a pit for the winepress, two, and built a watchtower, three. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them, two. They struck, him, struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. Three, he sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left a son, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the, of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? 
He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd again. So they left him and went away. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know that your Holy Spirit is amongst us and works powerfully. We invite him. May you remove any sin that we confess right here and now, any obstacle, any stumbling block, so that we may receive him, whether it be here or all of those who are listening to this message from the comfort of their homes. May your name be amplified and exalted. This is our earnest desire this morning. We pray in the beloved name of Jesus and all of his people said, Amen. There are disruptors in life. There are events that disrupt the way we do things. There is technology that disrupts the way we buy and shop and communicate with one another. And then there are people who disrupt human history. COVID is a very obvious disruptor. And disruptors are either creative or destructive. And we've found new ways of doing things while at the same time being harmed by the way we have to live. I mean, at a birthday party now, will anyone ever blow the candles and then share the cake? That's done. Will we ever go back to shaking hands and to hugging people? Yes. <laughs> With regards to technology, we're doing things differently. The way we're shopping, the way we're zooming in and out. The Lord Jesus Christ is a disruptor. And being a disruptor is not necessarily a negative thing. In disruption, you can be a disruptor and be a creative disruptor. And there are people who benefit from it. And you can be a disruptor and there are people who lose power and authority and be resentful of it. Try moving in on someone else's territory and stealing their business, legally or legally, and you will have an immediate response. You will get some pushback. The Lord Jesus Christ, since the time he came, lived, died, and resurrected, has been a major disruptor in our ethics, in our values, in our legal system, in our judicial system, in our social system. The Lord Jesus Christ is this a disruptor even today as we live. The Lord Jesus Christ is changing people. He's changing nations. He's molding people for his honor and glory. And as much as there was opposition to him back then, there is much opposition to him today. There are people who resent him who want to destroy him, who want to eliminate or devalue him as just a nice guy. But what the Lord Jesus Christ tells us in this passage is that he's much, much more than that. Who are the people that he's disrupting here in this passage? Let me place you in context. Jesus is living his last few days. 
He's coming to Jerusalem, and via the triumphal entry, people are acclaiming and proclaiming his greatness and his wonder. And there are Pharisees standing by the side and telling him, won't you tell these people to be quiet? Subsequently, he comes into the temple. And what does he do? He turns the tables over of the money changers because it was during Passover and all of the pilgrims from across the world had to make their way into the temple and the only currency that was accepted was temple currency. So regardless of what you had, you had to convert your money to temple currency. And who stood to gain? Well, the people who were running the temple. And by the way, when you walk into a place and turn over the tables and tell people, hey, this is awful, this is terrible, you can't do this anymore, it is a direct challenge to the people who are running the place. What Jesus is doing is he's coming onto their territory. This is their home turf. And by the way, going back all the way to Mark chapter 1, and Mark has been the book that we've been studying in our small group, beginning in Mark chapter 1, all the way here and continuing, Jesus is confronting the leaders. He's confronting them. And he's winning every single one. And as much as the leaders are trying to muscle back and fight back, they are no match for him. Absolutely no match. And what's even worse, what's even worse is that Jesus is winning the battle for hearts and minds. What do the people think of him? From Mark chapter 1 onwards, there's a recurring A word. The people are amazed at the Lord Jesus Christ. The people are astounded by the Lord Jesus Christ. The people are in awe. This is a wonderful study to conduct, how the people's response to Jesus is. As a matter of fact, there are two A words. They're amazed at his authority. And then they go even further and say, this Lord Jesus is unlike our teachers who have no authority. In other words, the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ have an impact have an influence, have a power on the people that it prompts them to change. And we know that wherever Jesus goes, and we hear afterwards and before this passage, in Luke we hear that the people are hanging on every word that comes out of his mouth. Later on we hear that the people delight in everything that they say. So here we have the Lord Jesus Christ, Living his last few days, he's on home turf, not his home turf, well, ultimately his home turf because he's Lord of heaven and earth, but he's on the home turf of whom? The teachers of the law, the elders, and the chief priests. He's right at the heart, and he's challenging them. He's challenging everything, and what's happening to them? They are being embarrassed and humiliated. So the day after... The day after this huge scene where the Lord Jesus Christ turns all the tables over and says, you can't do this anymore. We're told that three types of people make a beeline for him. He, came, he comes back into Jerusalem from Bethany and three types of people make a beeline for him. 
And they've been thinking about this all night long. They've been thinking and plotting all night long. We're going to confront him. So who comes to see him? Chief priests, teachers of the law, and the elders. And they say, we have two questions for you. Just two. Who told you you could do this? Who do you think you are? Who made you boss of us? No one likes someone coming in and telling you, hey, you, move the chair here. Hey, you, come closer. Hey, you, be quiet. Hey, you, speak up. Very few people like this. And these guys who are used to running the roost are being challenged and said, and are telling Jesus, by the way, what is your affiliation? What are your credentials? Are you a Sadducee? Are you a Pharisee? Under whom did you study? What school did you attend? What are your diplomas? What's your training? And by the way, trick question number two, who told you you can do this? And they were expecting Jesus to say, well, I said I could do it, in which case they would attack him violently. Or he could have answered what he's answered in the past, which is to say, what? My father. And what would have been their response? They would have attacked him physically because that would have been blasphemy. But these people are no match for Jesus. Absolutely not. You have two questions? Tell you what. I have one question. My question for you is as follows. And at face value, it seems like a random question. We go back to John the Baptist. What does John the Baptist have to do with this confrontation? I mean, John the Baptist is history. He's been arrested and beheaded. He's no longer a player. But Jesus' question is as follows. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Question mark. And if you look at the text, Jesus says and orders them with two words. Tell me. Exclamation mark. What's the relevance of that question? I'm going to read a passage from Matthew chapter 3, and we're going to rewind and based on what the Lord Jesus Christ is pointing to, he is very much responding. Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is come near. This is he who has spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw, this is John the Baptist, Look at, who, look at the people who came. 
But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to, him, coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, and these are not kind words, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? And this is the injunction and the exhortation. Produce fruit, and this is linked to part two. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me, after me, comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. I submit to you that amongst those people that were in the temple court that day challenging him were some of those very people that had gone to meet John or at the very least had heard of the teachings of John. And John bore a powerful and striking testimony of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and who he is and what he would do. Powerful testimony. This referral to John right here and now is no random and accidental effect. And what do the people do? What do the people, excuse me, the leaders? Because don't forget, there are many people around here and they're all looking at this drama unfolding before their very eyes. This is high stakes theatrics. It's unfolding in front of them. What are they gonna say now? So, I want you to imagine this. The leaders hear this and they don't know what to say. So what do people do? If you ever listen, if you ever watch courtroom scenes, sometimes what do they do? They ask for time out. So they move to the side, they huddle. They're actually doing this. So Jesus is waiting for an answer. These characters come to the side and they huddle and they say, okay, what are our options here? If they say, well, John was from God, and what did God say, what did John say about Jesus? That Jesus was the Son of God. And he would have said, well, why didn't you believe him? And if they said that John was a no one, a nobody, what did they say? What did they fear? They feared the crowd. But hold on a second here. When we're told that they fear the crowd, it's not that they feared their disapproval or people would start laughing or be embarrassed. It's much deeper than this. This story, these events are recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. What Luke tells us 
in chapter 20, verse 7, is that the people were afraid, that the leaders were afraid that the people would do what? They would pick up stones and stone them. So it's not as if they were, well, you know, we're going to look bad and blah, 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 blah. They feared for their life. When people don't want to lie or when they're in a hard spot, and they're in front of people and they're asked tough questions, here's a typical answer. I don't remember. It was a long time ago. I don't know. I haven't given it much thought. It's an out-and-out lie. They knew they were busted. So what did they do? (laughs) They made a strategic retreat, and they kept quiet. Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. What's the lesson here, friends, brothers and sisters? When I'm confronted with truth and reality... Do I comply or do I defy? Comply is obeying and listening and admitting, and this is really hard for a lot of people, this is really hard for a lot of people, saying, I was wrong, forgive me, can we move forward? I'm sorry, you're right. Please accept my apologies. It seems as if it's the right thing to do. (laughs) What about these leaders? They just couldn't bring themselves to do it. It just was too big an ask. I'm sorry, I'm wrong, you're right. Forgive me. Do you accept my apology? Brothers and sisters, people worldwide have heard of the Lord Jesus Christ in some way, shape, or form have the opportunity to give it more thought, to explore it, to think about it, to meditate about it, and in their heart of hearts, and only God can read the the heart's and minds of people. Do they ask the question, Lord Jesus, if you are who you are, show me. If you are who you claim to be, I would like to know more of you. I would like to see you and experience you. Or is it, you know what? He's a good guy, but not for me, but live and let live, but I'm not interested. I'm coming back to my first question, comply or defy? So every heart, every mind has the option of either obeying of complying, of submitting, of accepting, or defying. And people, and there are two types of people. There are people who come up 
and shake their fists and in a very loud voice and with a huge demonstration say, I don't believe all of this is nonsense. Or there are other people who are very quiet. They go about their business. They don't stir the pot. They don't make any waves, but they still do their own thing. Regardless of whether it's open or a cult, it is still defiance. Will you comply or will you defy? And for the believers here this morning, this message applies to you. God is speaking to you that there are areas in your life that are not right. I don't know what they are. You know what they are. Because the Holy Spirit convicts you of it. And my question to you this morning is, are you in continual defiance of God? Or are you willing to comply and to obey? Part two of this scene. It continues. It keeps going. By the way, if you read this whole passage, the accusers keep coming in waves. So he beats off this first wave, and then the Herodians and Pharisees keep coming to him and talking about coins. Then the Sadducees come to him and want to know about marriage after the resurrection. It just keeps coming and coming and coming and coming. They're all plotting and looking for ways to not only discredit him, but to arrest him and to kill him. And yet, throughout the whole thing, the Lord Jesus Christ demonstrates incredible self-control, incredible composure, and poise. He's never flustered. Oh, he got angry about the tables, but that was justified. He never, never loses control of the situation. So we move on to a next story about a vineyard. I don't drink much, but I love vineyards. I've gone to the old country. I've gone to California. I just love walking through a vineyard. And I love watching the way people tend to them and care to them and make them fruitful and prune them and water them and uh, cross-breed. It's actually a wonderful science. So Jesus tells a story about a vineyard. Again, it seems like a random story. All of a sudden, we just go from authority to a vineyard. Where does this come from? Brothers and sisters, it comes from Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. This story is exactly... It's exactly pretty much word for word what was prophesied over 700 years ago. Let me read it for you. It's worth it. Isaiah chapter 5 verses 1 to 7. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile, on a fertile hillside. He dug it and cleared it of stones, and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it, and cut out a winepress as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. 
What more could have been done for my vineyard that I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah and the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice but saw bloodshed, for righteousness but heard cries of distress. Some of the people would not have known about the story. Some of the common people. Some of them would know. But I'll tell you exactly who would have understood exactly what the story meant. The teachers of the law, the elders, the scribes, all of the quote-unquote educated people who had credentials, they knew exactly what Isaiah chapter one, 5 verses 1 to 7 said. And when they heard the story, they felt bad. Why do you think it is that they felt bad? Because the story is about them. Do you think they were more welcoming? They, they kept getting angrier and angrier by the minute. By the way, we read Matthew chapter 3. What did John the Baptist ask the Sadducees and the Pharisees to do in accordance with their quote-unquote, repentance, whether it was genuine or not. To bring fruit. To bring good fruit. Failing which? Cut down and thrown into the fire. Brothers and sisters, there are sometimes I read scripture, and I'll be honest with you, I don't know what's going on. Why is this random passage here? So I ask God, would you eventually, or even right now preferably, show me how this means something? Nothing in Scripture is haphazard, coincidental, random. It, it is all related to something. It's just a question of digging and asking the Spirit of God to reveal it to you. If they didn't feel bad, they felt very sad right now. They felt very mad. Sad and mad because they were being called out again and they were being embarrassed. Let me go back to the notion of authority briefly. There's two types of authority. There's legal authority and there's moral authority. Legal authority is the authority where you have the power to enforce it when people disobey you. If you don't do this, then I will do this. That's called enforcement. And then there's another type of authority. It's called moral authority. When someone, by their example, by their conduct, by their speech, by their deeds, behave in a spectacular way that causes quasi-unanimous approval that people, in turn, want to follow. Not out of fear, not out of obligation, not because they're compelled, not out of duress, but because they want to. Because they want to. Brothers and sisters, that is called winning the battle of hearts and minds. There's the legal authority and there's the moral authority. 
when the people all the way back said, our teachers are not like this guy, Jesus. They're not like him. He speaks with authority and he acts with authority when our leaders don't. The leaders had lost all moral authority because their conduct didn't live up to the standards that they were opposing, imposing on people. The Lord Jesus Christ had legal authority, had universal authority, but more often than not, he led because of his moral authority. People heard him, people saw him, and people loved him. And it drove his enemies crazy. And instead of accepting him, they were given countless occasions to accept him. They rejected him. Comply versus defy. Accept or reject. People are given many opportunities. This morning, if you're within earshot of my voice, don't close the door. And I'll tell you something that I like to say often. Be honest. Be honest with God. You don't even have to be honest with your neighbor. Be honest with God and with yourself and speak to Him truthfully of what's on your heart, of what's convicting you, and tell him sincerely that you want to follow him, that you want to be led by him, that you wish to be obedient even if you don't know how, that you want to submit to him even though it's difficult. Tell him that's what he's looking for. We're going to close on this with regards to part two. There's this notion of bearing fruit. Good grapes. The owner of that land invested heavily. He invested time and effort and resources. Isaiah chapter 5 tells us, that he picked a hillside. Hillsides are a wonderful place to plant vineyards, by the way, because the water drains and trickles down. And he picked a fertile hillside. And what else do you do? You remove the rocks. You don't want rocks. Rocks generally are not good. And he planted the choicest vineyard. He just, he just didn't pick some wild sapling and plant it. He went and picked the best type of vine to produce the best type of grapes that in turn produces the best type of wine. And you know what he did too? He planted a wall around it. Why would you have a wall around it? Is anyone going to attack a vineyard? The answer is no. But you know who can eat the vineyard? Sheep, goats, other animals who eat anything. And then he had a class one operation. He built a wine press so that the grapes didn't have to go from A to D where they would lose their freshness. They were going to be squeezed right on location. 
And there was a watchtower. In other words, in other words, God invested heavily, heavily in the nation of Israel. He did not spare any expense or any effort. This was a class operation if it was a business from beginning to end. And if you invest heavily in any enterprise and endeavor, are you entitled to have expectations with regards to results? Absolutely. And what were God's expectations for the people of Israel and their leadership? He was expecting great results, at least good results, maybe even fair results, maybe even, meh, some days good, some days not so good. Something, anything. And what did he get? He got grief. Every time he sent people to straighten them out, they would beat them up, they would send them back out empty-handed, and they would kill them. And ultimately said, I will send to you my son. I'll send to you my son. They're going to be good to him. You know what we're going to do? We're going to kill him. Because when we kill him, there's no one else to be an heir. And therefore, the vineyard will belong to us. And we're going to close on this. What are God's expectations of you? What are God's expectations of me? I want to make something crystal clear as I look to crystal. Our works don't earn our way to heaven. Is that clear? But our works are a pretty good indicator of what we believe and who we are. It's a natural byproduct of our essence and our core identity. And we need to ask the questions, God, Lord Jesus, am I meeting the standard? Am I being fruitful? Are you pleased? And if you think the answer is no, be honest and say, I would like to. Help me. I would like to. Help me. Comply. Don't defy. Accept. Don't reject. And bear fruit in accordance to your calling. We serve a great God. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I am amazed this morning. Thank you for this passage that you gave me to study and to expound upon. And I've seen a new side to you. I am amazed. I'm astounded at all that you do and all of you say and how notwithstanding all of your enemy's best efforts you cannot be deterred you cannot be made to fail that you set your sight to die on that cross in submission and obedience to the authority of your Father. Thank you that you teach us furthermore that you 
exercise ultimate authority, not only over your life, but over all of the universe. Lord Jesus, this morning we want to submit to you. And we want to tell you that we want to produce good fruit in accordance to our calling. This is our sincere desire. We are frail and we're weak and we make mistakes. But look at our hearts this morning. Help us to be honest with you. And help us to be the people that we were predestined to be. And that we would bring you honor and that you would be pleased with each and every one of us. 